Amen. I'm going to be in John chapter 14 um, for a good portion of uh, of my message tonight. Um, gosh, and I don't know that I ever leave uh, the book of John. Um, so let's let's read the first six verses of John chapter 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. This is this is Jesus speaking. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The first three scriptures that I read there, the first three verses of John 14 are among the most comforting words in the entire Bible. These words are spoken from the Father's heart and from the lips of Jesus. And they speak of many things. I'm going to focus on three. But if we read that again, we hear the words spoken of of covenant, of security, of clarity. Clarity of who Jesus are, uh, who Jesus is, who we are, what Jesus is. He is the way. Friends, this is one of those passages that every single one of us should have locked and loaded. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. No one can come to the Father except through Jesus. Jesus spoke these words to a very unique group of people at a very unique time. These words were spoken to men who at this time were known as disciples. But in just a small handful of days, their title would change. What they're known as would change. They would no longer be known as just the disciples of Jesus Christ, but as apostles. As apostles. As those sent out to take the message of the good news of Jesus Christ to the world. But at the time that they received these, they received these words as disciples. Jesus was there with them. In this passage, by the way, in that that message, we'll see that uh, there were 11 people that received uh, those words from Jesus, that Judas was not not, uh, on the scene at that time. In this passage, we are assured of three amazing things. And those are the three things I'm going to kind of camp on tonight. Um, And and we'll see different applications of it. And those three things are this. Peace, place, and promise. Peace, place, and promise. Jesus begins with a comforting exhortation. He says in John 14, verse 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. And also believe in me. Don't be troubled. Jesus says, be at peace. Our peace is based on one thing and one thing only. And that's our belief in Jesus Christ. Friends, without a belief in Jesus Christ and a belief in who he is, and that he is who who he said he is, and he's done what he has said he's done, Without that belief, there is no peace. 
Our belief is founded on that. And, and that's a thing to, to praise God about. That's a thing to be comforted about, is that we have been given the foundation of peace. We can fully believe and trust in God. He is trustworthy. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. That's a wonderful hymn. On Christ I am founded and built and on that rock everything else about me gets built. I don't know if when it says, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, I assume that's a building, this is a building analogy. I assume it's talking about framework, that it's a framing analogy. And maybe I'm just in that mindset because of how much work we're doing over at the church. But yeah, I dare not trust the most stable frame if that is not built upon Jesus Christ as our foundation. Through Jesus Christ, we've been given a foundation of peace on which we can build our lives and on which we can weather any storm. Christ is our solid rock. Jesus comforts us with the assurance of peace. And then second, the assurance of place. Verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Jesus has promised to prepare a place for us in the palace of God. And in this place, we have eternal fellowship. Last week, uh, there was a reference to, to Psalm 51 and David's repenting, coming before the Lord and repenting for what he had done, for adultery and for, for murder uh, as a result of that. And he cries out for the presence of God. He says, take not your presence, your spirit from me. You guys, that place that we are promised and assured and comforted with, it's a place of being in the presence of God. Jesus builds the foundation of this place with peace. And then he himself goes away to prepare that place for us. How amazing is that? That speaks of covenant. I talked about covenant. That's the epitome of covenant. It's the bridegroom saying, hey, I'm going away to prepare a place. And we're in covenant now. You're mine. You're my bride. I'm coming back for you. But first, I'm going away to prepare a place. And it's going to be great. And when I can come back and we can be together, I'm going to come back and bring you and we're going to be together in that place. And finally, we have his personal promise that he is returning for us to personally take us to this heavenly home. Verse 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Not just to our home. Not just to our home. But to Him. He takes us unto Him. He takes us to Him. To anyone who will believe in Jesus Christ, we are given peace, place, and promise. Now that word in and of itself, 
That's an encouraging word for disciples. That's an encouraging word for the church. That's a fantastic reminder that we have been given peace and that we get to walk with peace, that we have been given place, that He goes to prepare a place for us, and that we get His promise. That's a comforting word spoken to disciples. But friends, He didn't just speak this word to disciples. He spoke this word to apostles. He spoke this word to people who weren't just supposed to just sit and let this word be pertained to them. That we're going to sit there and just ruminate on the goodness and the comfort of this word. But he spoke this word to disciples who were quickly becoming apostles. To take this word and be sent out to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to a world in need of hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. Friends, we're not supposed to just hear this word tonight as a church to receive comfort for ourselves. Now, we've got to grab a hold of this. We've got to grab a hold of this because we need to keep in mind that in Him we have peace and that we have been given this promise and that our foundation is peace. And if the enemy tries to come against our foundation and he tries to come against our peace, then we've got to stand on the Word of God. And we've got to stand on the promises of God. And we've got to know our place in Him. But this word has to go beyond the church walls. These words were spoken to these men by Jesus after eating supper with them for the very last time. These words were spoken at the Last Supper. What's especially cool is the setting from which Jesus gives us these three comforting promises. Jesus spoke these words of peace and place and promise after Judas had been identified by Jesus as his betrayer. After Judas walks out of the room, walks away from their fellowship, walks away from the promise, walks away from this room, walks away completely. After Jesus leaves to go betray, Judas leaves to go betray Christ. I want to point out something that's, that's interesting. We're not going to turn there. You can you can turn back and read John chapter uh, 13 and 14 and tie it in. But something cool about this story of the Last Supper um, that often gets unmentioned or overlooked, even in this place of Jesus knowing that Judas was going to betray him, Jesus gave Judas a place of honor. Um, Bible scholars they've kind of been able to piece together not the entire seat and arrangement at that supper um, but at least who was on the right and the left of Jesus and here's how they did so so we see we're reading early on we see that the author of this book that John you know who refers to himself in third person you know talks about that he placed his head upon the chest of Jesus and that Peter at one point motions to John who's clearly close enough to Jesus that Peter's like who who who's going to betray him Okay, so we know that, that John is right there next to, to Jesus. So we don't know exactly which side. But we can ascertain that John was on the right and Judas was on the left. And here's how we can do that. In, in this Eastern custom and in culture, being seated on the left was a place of honor. And not just a place of honor. That was a place where the host gave special favor to that guest and, and personally handed him a morsel of of food before they before they began eating. When we read that Jesus dips the bread 
and hands it to Judas. He hands it to his left. He hands it to the place of honor that he had sat Judas at. I believe in that moment, Jesus knew what Judas was going to do. Obviously, he knew that he was going to be betrayed. But I I firmly believe, even at that moment, with that gesture of honor that Jesus put Judas in, even up to that minute, Judas had an opportunity to repent. Judas had an opportunity to, to agree with Jesus and his plan. But it says that instead, when he received that, he also allowed the enemy to come into him. He received Satan, and Satan entered him at that moment. How awesome is our God that even in the face of betrayal, he still shows honor. Even in the face of betrayal, he still gives honor. That's the Savior we serve, friends. That is an amazing Lord and Savior. Just after Judas's exit, Jesus says, where I'm going, you cannot follow me. But you will follow me later. Where I'm going, to a place of torture, and a place of false accusation, and a place of humiliation, and a place of murder and death. It's not within you. You can't follow. It's not within you. It's not there. It's not part of your call. It's not part of your mission. You're going to scatter. You can't follow me there, but you will follow me later. You will follow me later because that is part of your call. That is part of your mission. You will gather together and I will appear to him. I, and I could see him just kind of having to hold things in. He's like, you can't follow me now, but you're going to follow me later. You can't follow me now. It's not within you. Friends, there's times we walk things out and we beat ourselves up for not having the strength to walk certain things out. And we go, oh Lord, I'm just not strong enough. And he's like, that's okay. You can't follow me there, but you're going to follow me later. You can't follow me there, but you're going to follow me later. How amazing is it that we serve a Savior that has so much grace for us. He knows our strengths and our weaknesses and our flaws and our shortcomings and our calling. He knows what he's called us to do. And he said, that's right, you're going to be there. You're going to be there. Stay in the race. Brad preached a message about just walking it out. Stay the course. You're going to make mistakes along the way as Abraham did. But stay the course. Peter replies with this famous, heartfelt, but naive and incorrect set of words. He says in John 13, 37 and 38, Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, he's saying with all sincerity, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So that's John thirteen thirty seven and 38. What are the very next words that John records that Jesus speaks? What are the very next words recorded by John that Jesus speaks? We already started with them. John 14, 1. Let your hearts not be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. See, friends, sometimes we we look at the little headings of our Bible and we see the chapter designations and we think that there was a change of theme and there wasn't. Okay, John 13 ends with Peter saying, I'm going to die for you. And Jesus going, your your heart's in the right place, but it's not within you. In fact, you're going to deny me three times. And then he looks to the... And then talk about an awkward moment in the room. Talk about an uncomfortable silence in the room. Right? I mean, Peter going... and, And Jesus quickly says... Let your hearts not be troubled. Have peace. Be at peace. 
Believe in God and believe in me. Don't you love that in the midst of betrayal by one close friend and in the midst of just grandiose claims that Jesus knows are not true by another one of those close friends, that Jesus exudes nothing but grace and comfort and peace and strength and confidence in the call of these men in this room. That's our Lord. That's our Jesus. Soon after saying the words in verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Soon after that, Jesus leads the disciples on a walk that would stop on the near side of the brook Kidron and that ultimately would lead to the Garden of Gethsemane. If you'll read through chapters 14 and 15 and 16 and 17, you'll see the discussion that took place in that transition from the room to the walk until the the moment that they crossed over the brook Kidron. You'll see powerful dialogue that Jesus has with the eleven. That Jesus has with the apostles. The last things that Jesus says on that walk to the garden where he knows that he will be arrested and and that that will be, that's the beginning of the place of the cross. Two weeks ago I I preached on, on the cross and remembering the cross. And it starts right there in the garden and Jesus knows it. And for for 14, 15, 16, and 17, for these four chapters, we see the discussion with Jesus as they transition at some point out of the room and on that walk. Jesus makes definitive statements about who he is. None more definitive than, I am the way. I am the truth. There's no way to the Father except through me. He makes definitive statements of what will happen to him of what will happen to them. He talks of joy and he talks of sorrow. He tells them definitively that he came from the Father and that he's returning to the Father. And he tells them the time is now at hand that you're going to be scattered and you're going to leave me. Then he concludes his final teaching to the disciples, his final lesson pre-crucifixion with these words John 16 33 I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace in the world you will have tribulation but take heart I have overcome the world in the world you're going to have difficulties you're going to have persecution you're going to have crushing this is that word thelipsis you're going to have crushing but I've overcome the world then at the end of these words And yet still, before he goes into the garden to pray, he does what? He prays. He he does a pre-prayer. He's like, I'm going to go into the garden to pray, but I'm going to do some pre-prayer prayer. prayer. Um, Lord, I pray right now that, Lord, that we would be a church that follows your example of prayer. That places a, a higher value on prayer, a higher trust and a need and a dependency on prayer, Lord God. Make us that church, Lord. 
before he goes into the garden to pray, he prays. And in John 17, 1 through 5, he prays for himself. In verses 6 through 19, he prays for his disciples. And then in verses 20 through 26, he prays for all believers, including who? All believers, all believers, including who? Us. Including you. Including me. Jesus, before going into the garden just to get alone with the Father, the last prayer He lifts up is for you and I. Is for us. And this is what He prays. John 17, verse 20. I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me. Friends, as we read this, please please listen and, and, and pay close attention to the verb tense that Jesus uses in this prayer, okay? I do not ask for these only, for the disciples only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me. Isn't this an interesting contrast of past tense and future tense? That the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. I love that God already loved me, that the Father already loved me before I believed in Him. He already loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And I love that he's tying back in those elements. Peace. Place. Promise. But this time he's he's praying for us. See, he prayed for the disciples. And I believe that, that soon thereafter, that's when they became apostles. I mean, that's not like an official time, but man, they sat there and watched their Savior die. They sat, sat and watched him and they, and they did so from a distance. Some did so from a distance. Others just heard about it later because they couldn't even bear to be there. They were too afraid. But then they saw him raised from the dead. And they ate with him and they met with him and they walked with him and they heard him once again and they embraced him and they touched his wounds. And at some point... They became apostles. At some point, they became sent ones. Church, at some point, we've got to become sent ones. At some point, we've got to say, we're going to go out there and we're going to fulfill this because the work is not done. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these, they know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known. The love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So what's my point in highlighting all this? It's simple. The work is not done. And we are called to be a part of that work. 
We are called to be a part of that work of taking the good news of Jesus Christ to a world that does not know. Listen to the, to the prayers of Jesus pleading with the Father for those who don't know Him. But He wants them in Him and in the Father. The message of peace and place and promise isn't just for our sake. This message isn't just to make us feel good. It is not just to bring us promise. It's to, it's, it serves as a reminder that there's a world that needs to know that in the midst of turmoil and chaos and betrayal, they can have peace. But it's through believing in Jesus Christ. There's a world out there that needs to know that He's given them place. And it's not just when they die. That's the beauty of this. Because Jesus talks for a while about, about Him going away to prepare a place. But friends, we get place right now. We get to eat at His table right now. All you want. Just tuck it in and just, all you want, baby. He paid the bill. You get to feast at His table. You've been given a place at His table right now. This isn't just for when we die. The promise isn't just of our salvation. The promise, this is so cool, the promise is that right now we get to be with His presence always. He says, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. Sometimes we just forget that He's always there. We forget that the Holy Spirit has been sent as our as another comforter, as another similar, likewise comforter to Jesus Christ. But we get the promise now. We get to be in His presence now. We get to be touched and healed and laugh and have peace and have joy now. We can have peace now. We can be in place now. We get the promise of His presence now. Jesus obediently to the Father offered His life as a sacrifice for the world's sin. For our sin. Friends, we always preach Jesus. We need to be reminded of of whose name we bear. We call ourselves Christians. As little Christs. We need to constantly be reminding ourselves who the Christ is. Who the anointed one is. He was a sacrifice for our sin so that those who would believe may be one. Right? So that those who believe might be in unity, perfect unity, perfectly one. I love that. I love that he goes, I want them to be one. I want them to be perfectly one. I want them to be in perfect unity as you and I, Father, are in perfect unity. That's what Jesus wants. We can have that, friends. The world can have that. They just don't know it. How are they going to know unless someone tells them? But what needs to happen? At the end of that verse, Jesus says, I will continue to make it known. I will continue to make it known. Jesus says that. How? How? How will Jesus continue to make it known? by the empowering of the Holy Spirit in you and I to be bold witnesses and us sharing in His work. It's His work. It's not our work, right? It's His church. It's not our church. It's His work. And we get to share in it 
So it truly is Jesus continuing to make it known by the power and the leading and the guidance and the teaching of the Holy Spirit flowing through us, taking it to the world. We as the church, I really want to encourage us. And hear my heart in this, guys, but also hear the, the importance of this. We've got to to stop making everything that we hear in church about us. And there's got to come a point where we take that, that what we've been given and we go outside these doors and we do something with it. it the, the, those words are so comforting. Spoken in the first three verses of John 14. It's super comforting. But at some point, we've got to say, I'm comforted. I, I, I'm, I'm comforted. I'm, I'm good. Now I'm going to take that comfort and I'm going to go outside these walls and I'm going to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. And I want to go in. I'm going to demonstrate His power by the leading of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was passionately obedient to the Father. John talks a lot about those who love Him will be passionately obedient to Him. Not out of obligation. That's not what passionate obedience is. You can't have passionate obedience and it still be in this, used in the same sentence as obligation. Passionate obedience is done out of love. It's done out of love. And it's it's a sign that we truly love Him. So let's be passionate lovers. Let's be passionate sharers of His peace, reminders of the place that this world can have in Him and the promises of God.